0: So how many of you remember that excitement as a kid the night before Christmas when you couldn't sleep but you had to, so you just laid in bed like staring and like excited and, and you know it's coming, it's there, but you have to somehow get to sleep first now why? Because we knew it was there. We had the, the news. I mean we we've grown up obviously with Christmas, but you know, I remember one particular Christmas that I was really excited because my uh my grandmother was coming to visit and I didn't get to see her a lot as a as a child because I lived in Texas, she lived in Georgia, and uh I just remember they were on their way and I was just waiting for this arrival. And you know, I just I'd go back and just check the door, you know. Maybe I can see him down the road. Maybe I can look. And that sense of expectation. You know God built that sense of expectation by telling us what he was going to do over thousands of years. And can you imagine being alive when it finally happened? To be a person of faith that you have looked in the scriptures, and, and generation after generation has looked for these signs, they've, they've waited, they've taught it, they've passed it along, they've prayed for it, they they've just know that God is going to do this thing, and then, suddenly, bam, star in the sky, angels filling the sky, shepherds receiving an announcement. What an exciting moment. That is what we celebrate at Christmas, and so I want us to to go back, and I, and obviously we're we're calling this this you know short Christmas series God with us, because again I don't want us to miss the point of really what Christmas is, and in our world today it's it's kind of easy to you know and and I get the humor of it and and I'm not saying that it's you know a bad thing but I mean. You know, we've replaced, you know, nativity scenes and lawns with scenes from, you know, Christmas vacation. And while I understand the humor, I I don't want us to lose what this is really about because it is not about Cousin Eddie. It's it's just not, you know. And so we're going to look today at the promise of prophecy of how God told us ahead of time what he was going to do that God laid the groundwork generations before and, and told us exactly how it was going to happen, what was going to happen. And I want to start with a, a scripture from Amos 3.7 that tells us something amazing about our God. And it says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, what does that tell you about God? This is an amazing prophet. He does nothing without first telling his prophets. Now, what is a prophet's job? To take the message of God to the people. In the Old Testament, God would tell the prophet. The prophet was then go out and say, thus saith the Lord, and here it is. And so God is telling us, I'm not going to do anything without telling you about it ahead of time. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't want us caught by surprise. Now, are we always caught by surprise? Yes, because we don't ever seem to understand the prophecies until they happen. And then we look back and we're like, oh, wow, that was obvious. That was as clear as day. Like he just lined it out exactly what was going to happen. And yet somehow we miss it because we just don't think like God. And we always interpret things, you know, through our own lens and not through the lens of eternity. But even when we miss it in the moment we can go back then and look and see the heart of god in action we can go back and read those reread those prophecies and get a sense for who god is how he talks to us how close he is and, and see clearly his purposes because as scripture says hindsight is 2020 and so we can look at the christmas story now and go back to the prophecies and see clearly just how much promise God gave us. You see, promise, prophecy is a promise that God gives to us about what He is going to do, so that our hope is in Him and not what we see, think, or feel in the moment. And that's why we often miss prophecy, or, or people did in the Old Testament, and even today in, in New Testament times, we miss it because we interpret it through what we see, think, and feel to be true right now. And God is always operating at this higher level. It's like, oh, no, this stuff has nothing to do with that. I'm going to do something amazing. And so for us to understand prophecy properly, we first have to understand the goal. What is it God wants to do? Because if we get the wrong goal in mind, then we'll start looking for things that don't line up with his purposes at all. If we don't understand, hey, God's working to this end, we may think he's working to this end. And so we start trying to interpret things with that in view. And when we do that, now we get very confused and we just, we just get it wrong. And I want you to think about it like this. The actions of God only make sense when we understand the goal he's working towards. Now, this is important in every area of life, right? If I were to hire a personal trainer, that trainer's going to ask me some questions like what? What is your goal? Do you want to lose weight? Do you want to gain muscle? Do you want to build endurance or do you want to build strength? Which, which one? Because they're very different exercises. He's also going to say, hey, what's your diet like? Because uh, if you don't get that under control, you're kind of wasting your time with the rest of this. There are certain questions, and when we understand the goal, then we understand the road to that goal, and this is all over in life, and and so all of those goals are going to involve exercise. All will involve effort, but they're going to be very different types of exercise, so knowing the goal is important so that we know the road to get us there. Now, oftentimes, people have no goal, right? We just kind of float through life sometimes. We act and hope for the best, and then we're like, well, I don't know why this happened, (laughs) but we didn't really plan for anything. We just kind of reacted to life, and we keep reacting to life, and we're not ever really proactive in a direction. That's not how God is. You know, many times uh, people say they have a goal, and then they do things that are 100% contrary to that goal. And they say, well, I really want this to happen, and we can look and say, but your actions say 100% 100% otherwise. In this, again, we can set some very lofty goals in life, but if we don't know the road to those, if we don't understand that, then those goals kind of become meaningless. The good news is that God knows the road to his goals, and he tells us ahead of time, and when we know what that goal is, then we can look at what he has done through history and see God has absolutely lined up with that goal from the beginning. He has never deviated from it. He has never done anything to, to divert from that goal. Everything he has done has been with the purpose of one goal. And you ready? You want to know what that goal is? He told us. In Isaiah 1.18, he told us his goal. He says, come now Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How many of you knew that was the goal that God was working towards? Everything he does is for what one purpose, and what is it? To remove the sins of mankind. That's his goal. And I want you to think about this, the God who spoke the universe into existence in all its vastness, the God who spoke the quantum world of atoms and subatomic particles into existence, the God of unlimited power, unlimited knowledge and wisdom has one main goal for us, and that is that our sins would be removed. That is where God has chosen to direct his power, his efforts, history, everything that he does, he has chosen to move in that one direction. And God told us through the prophet Isaiah that when we quiet ourselves and reason together with the Lord, we will find that purpose active in our lives. We will see him active in doing that. And you know what? I love this. I love this phrase at the beginning. It's always struck me every time I read it when he says, come now, let us reason together. Have you ever had somebody truly in power say, come here, let's sit down and let's just talk. The God of the universe has invited all of us to sit down for a cup of coffee with him and let's reason this out. Notice he didn't put any conditions on it. He didn't say, hey, fix yourself first, and then I'll talk to you. He didn't say, hey, do this first, and then we'll talk about you. He said, let's reason together. Together. God didn't even just proclaim, hey, I'm doing this, and you better get on board with it. Could he? Absolutely. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But what did God do? He chose to say, let's Reason together. Let us reason together. And when we are reasonable with God, wouldn't you like that? When we are reasonable, we're going to see that God is on our side. We're going to see that God is working for us, not against us we're also going to see that we're a mess. No, I mean he he tells us right there, come let us reason together. He says though your sins are like scarlet. When we reason with him, there're going to be some 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 real cringeworthy moments as we just realize the depth of our sin and we realize just how separated from him we are and he kind of makes the case and he's like listen, I I'm, I'm not angry with you, but but something's got to be done about this because your sins are this blight and a stain on your existence and it's got to be taken away. And we can't get that stain removed until we agree with him that there is a stain. And it's a horrible stain. You know, when I uh, when I share the gospel with with children, one of the the things that I I share is that God, when he creates us, he creates us all with a heart that is clean. But every time we sin, it puts a stain on our heart. And it's a deep stain. And, you know, children understand that. They, they know, you know, they get their clothes dirty and it's stained and it doesn't come out. And, I say, and every time we sin, it just stains our heart. And I say, and then you know what? God has one rule about heaven. One rule. And you know what that rule is? Dirty hearts, no dirty hearts allowed in heaven. And so I ask them, I say, What do you got to do? And they know, in, the, in that childlike fashion, they say, Well, I got I to clean my heart. I say, I know, but do you know how? You see, we can't clean our own hearts, and that's why God says, Let us reason together. He says, I've got the answer, my work is going to be for that purpose. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He tells us his goal. And so... The kingdom of God, think about it, as the kingdom of God was progressively revealed through the Old Testament and we had these prophets, we had the law, we had a, a rebellious people of Israel, we had the flawed kings of Israel and Judah, we had the powerful prophets all pointing to a day of the Lord in a time when God's mighty hand would move and he would restore all things, that he would accomplish great things when we understand prophecy correctly. Those great things that he was going to accomplish are what? It starts with one thing. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God is not going to establish a worldly kingdom or establish anything new until one thing happens first. And that is the sins of his people are completely removed. And those are the things that we celebrate. And here's the truth on this, okay? Okay. No law could bring this about. There isn't a rule in this world that's going to remove the stain of sin from your life. There is no law that we can put on the books that's going to make a lawbreaker who's already broken the law not guilty of breaking the law. All the law can do is tell us here's the line, and when you come in under it, you're guilty. And you know what the problem is? We're all guilty. God gave us the law not to make us clean, but to show us how dirty we really are. To reveal every stain in the human heart. And so we just look at the Ten Commandments. Just look at them. You shall have no other gods before me. How many times have you put something other than God as more important in your life? If God judged you on Judgment Day just by the first of the Ten Commandments, will you stand as innocent or guilty? And when we just take that one, we got nine more. Do you want to go through them? We got nine more. And God is going to go through every single one of them and say, you are guilty unless your sins have been made white as snow. Now, notice that's what God's goal is. He doesn't want To judge us according to the law, he will because he's just because he is holy, and his one rule will stand forever in heaven. That there will be no sin in heaven. But that is not his goal. What is his goal? Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. That's amazing. I hope that that stirs something inside of you that God is saying, look, I don't want judgment on you. I don't want the second death. I don't want you to be separated from me, and I'm going to do everything necessary to bring you back to me. But it requires that we come and reason together with him. We have to be reasonable with God because God has done his part. Will we see it, and will we show up and reason with him so that our sins will be removed? Because what the law had to do was to bring us to a point of desperation. Anybody in here ever been to that point of, I'm going to be good, and I'm going to make myself better, and no matter how many rules you set up for yourself, you realize as soon as you set the rule, what do you do? You break it. This is what we do. You know why? Because we're sinful. That is part of the problem is that the law, Paul tells us in Romans, empowers sin. So every time we set up a new rule for ourselves to be good, all we do is give sin some more power in our lives to say, oh, you think you're good? Let me show you you're not. And God is not up there like, see, oh, I can't believe them. Look at them. You know what he's doing? He's saying, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. I've got this for you. I will take care of it. I want your sins to be removed. I want them to be cleansed. And then he even tells us the means by which he's going to do it. I would think that we would say, you know what, that's enough. God, you have said, come reason together, though your sins be like scarlet, they'll be made white as snow, that that would be enough. We'd be like, cool, God, I'm in. But he says, you know, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to do something that's going to show you when I am doing this. I'm going to show you the means by which it's going to happen. you ready for this? Here's the means. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Whoa. He just upped. I mean, this is prophecy. This is God telling us ahead of time what he's going to do. And do we know what the name Emmanuel means? Everybody? God with us. So he says, I am going to come do it for you. Not only are your sins going to be wiped out, but I'm the one that's going to show up and do it. Now, I love is that he didn't put it on our shoulders. He didn't say, hey, you need to do these things. You know why? Because we'd mess it up. And you know how I know we'd mess it up? Because in the Garden of Eden, we had one command. Don't eat from that fruit. That thing's bad and you'll die. And we're like, cool, that's what I want. (laughs) Don't tell me what to do, God. And God knows that that's who we are. And so he says, I'll give you a sign and I'm going to do something impossible. So you'll know it's me. I'm going to do something so impossible that you will know there's no other explanation other than it is God. When he says the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's not something anybody could manufacture or falsify or or produce on their own. It is what? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That is an unmistakable sign. It is. And, you know, in in Scripture, God has a way of making sure we know it's him. Think about it. Nobody in Scripture has ever truly been confused. It's like, is that really God? I don't know. Is that? It could be something else. No, every time God does something, people are like, excuse me, what? Huh? You know, a burning bush that's not consumed. That's weird. I'm going to go check that out. Who are you? Get your shoes off your feet. This is holy ground. I am the Lord your God. Yes, sir. He makes it unmistakable over and over again. A burning bush that isn't consumed. The parting of the Red Sea. Fire from heaven multiple times throughout the Old Testament. The ground opening up and swallowing rebellious people. A talking donkey. How many of you don't know that story and you're like, a talking donkey? A floating axe head. A widow's oil that never runs out. A giant warrior slain by a boy in a sling. God has no shortage of miracles with which he showed his power. But there is one common kind of miracle that God wants us to notice through scripture. You know what it is? A child to a childless woman. It started with Abraham and his wife Sarah. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 80, and he said, you're going to have a child. And they're like, (laughs) that's funny. And God says, and you're going to name him Isaac because you laughed at me when I told you. And guess what? She had a child. And this is a theme that runs all through the Old Testament. You see, God, when he says, I'm not going to do anything without announcing it first, he couldn't announce it any louder than he does. Other than him just showing up to each of us every single day and saying, I'm going to do this in five minutes. And we still wouldn't believe him. It had happened in five minutes. I can't believe that happened. And he's like, I just told you you're going to happen. You know, that's even in scripture, in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts complaining. He's like, God, you're not doing your job. I can't believe all these unrighteous people are doing all this stuff. And why don't you move? And he says, oh, I'm going to move. I'm going to do something in your day that you wouldn't believe, even if you were told. And he goes, really? I don't think you're going to do anything. God says, well, I'm going to do this. And he goes, I don't believe it. That's literally the discussion in the first chapter of Habakkuk. I don't believe it. And he's like, see, told you. You're not going to believe it. And so God makes it as obvious as he can. we just have to what? Be reasonable. Sit down and reason with God and listen to what he has to say. We have to pray, God, give us ears to hear Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that will understand because God has yelled it for all eternity what he's going to do. And so throughout the Old Testament, we had Sarah was barren, had a promised child at 80 years old. Rebecca was barren and had a child after Isaac prayed for her. Rachel was barren and God gave her Jacob and who? Or gave her and Jacob two children, Joseph and Benjamin. The wife of Manoah was barren, and an angel promised a child that would be a Nazarite from birth. His name was Samson. Hannah was barren. She prayed that any son that God would give her, she would dedicate to the Lord, and his name was Samuel. Elizabeth was barren, and an angel told her husband, Zacharias, a priest, that they would have a child. And that his name should be John. Who was he? John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And so when we see this promise that the virgin will conceive, all God is doing is saying, look at what I've already done, and now I'm going to raise the stakes even higher so that you just know that it's me. Oh, and by the way, that baby that's born, that will be me. Oh, you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. You see, there's a theme of wombs that were unable to bear children, bearing children for the service of the Lord and fulfillment of the Lord's promise. So when Isaiah makes the greatest of prophecies regarding a virgin bearing a child, it really shouldn't be a surprise. It should feel like the peak of what God is doing. That we've been building up to this, and suddenly here it is. Here is the great moment of all of history. Because he told us ahead of time that he would perform a miracle that would let us know without doubt or confusion that he is starting the process of removing the sins of his people. God started ahead of time and he said what he would do. Now what this is not, it is not the start of a political kingdom. It is not the start of a political movement. It is not just a culture that he wants people to adopt. It is not a philosophy that we need to just embrace and and we can learn our way into heaven. It is not a law or a set of rules or a set of morality or, or whatever that if we're good enough, we can get into heaven. That's not what he's talking about. What is it? He says his name shall be called Emmanuel. This is God himself stepping into our creation. The creation that he made. God stepping into his world to be with us. So the virgin will conceive. The child that is born will be God in flesh. Now don't miss the extraordinary nature of this. See, so many times we get caught up on the virgin birth part of it. And we miss the bigger part. That's actually the lesser. Think about that. The virgin conceiving is the lesser Part of this prophecy. Because what's the, the greater part of it? God with us. Emmanuel. And we get caught up. I, I hear it today. People argue, well, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, and, 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 and we do need to believe in the virgin birth, but we're kind of missing the bigger point. That the author himself, the creator himself says, I am coming into this world as Flesh and blood. That is a sign that cannot be mistaken. God Himself will remove the sins of His people. And so, what will the result of this be? What happens when the sins of His people are removed? Is it just, oh, now you've got no sin, and that's the end of it, and we just go on? Oh, no, there's something major that comes out of this. And God, again, tells us ahead of time. In Isaiah 9, 2 through 5, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. a multiplied nation, a multiplied people, increased joy, broken power of the oppressors through the victory of the child that is born. We will be set free. There will be a freedom and a permanence to that freedom. There will be a kingdom that is established that will just continue to multiply. The joy will be there. There will be no more suffering and sorrow and pain. That this beginning, this goal of removing sin from the people will accomplish everything that we could hope or imagine. Everything that sin promises this child will actually provide. Everything that sin has taken away, this child will restore. Everything that has gone wrong, this child will fix. And so Isaiah reminds us that this is the child that he's talking about. And then he wants us to know exactly who this child is. He's already told us God with us, but, but that's not enough. You see, like I said, God doesn't leave it to chance. He announces it with a trumpet, and he screams it as loud as he possibly can. And, and just if we will just be reasonable, just quiet our minds and listen to him, we hear the good news. And what is it? Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Give me an amen. I mean it. Listen to that. The government shall. look. God knows. He knows. He's like, I know y'all are messed up. I know it's broken. I know it's corrupt. I know it doesn't work. I know nothing works. He will take care of it. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince The son will accomplish the impossible. The child that is given to us will grow to accomplish the impossible. The government will be upon his shoulder. His kingdom will never fall, and it will stand in his power for all eternity. It will not be dependent upon any mortal man or earthly system. It will be entirely dependent on him and his resurrected Power, and it will increase in size, power, and influence for all eternity. Now, I want you to think about how exciting this is. It starts with the birth of a helpless baby laid in a manger. And it's like, mark it down. This is what Isaiah is telling. He says, mark it down. When this happens, here's where it's going. This, it, it will never stop. It starts the ball rolling, and that ball will roll for all eternity as he will grow, as he accomplishes the impossible. His power, his might, his kingdom will continue to grow and will continue to be what it is and be hindered by nothing for all eternity. And I love that he, this is so God that he says, and look for it with the birth of God. What do we think of when we think of inaugurating a kingdom? You know, great military victory, power and might and come in and conquer and take control. And God says, no, I'm so good at this. I can just be born as a child and it'll start the ball rolling. Everything will happen. I don't have to come in and conquer the world. All I got to do is step into it and give my life for their sins. And it will go from there and it will just continue to grow. It will be founded and upheld in justice and righteousness. Amen. Justice and righteousness. There will never be injustice in the true kingdom of God. There will be no unrighteousness, no dirty hearts in his kingdom. So what does the New Testament say about this kingdom? Now that Jesus has been born, what does it say? In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. If you don't know, that's you and me who are born again. The assembly of the firstborn, Jesus Christ, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him be reasonable. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, this world, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That is the kingdom that was born that day. That's what God prophesied. And so we have the names of God right here given. He says his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince See, names in the Old Testament tell a story. We kind of miss that a lot of times just because there's such a a gap really between uh, the Old Testament world and and especially the Hebrew language and and English. And so we get all these Hebrew names that we just can't pronounce, so we just kind of skip over them because we can't pronounce them because they're like this long. It's because they're telling a story. And they, they would say things like, Meir Shalal Hashbaz, a remnant shall return. Or when he divorced himself from the northern kingdom of Israel and he called him Lo Ami, not my people. You see, names meant something. And so Isaiah is saying, here are the names. This is what God, this is what this child is going to accomplish. This is who he is. And what is it? Wonderful counselor. The son would not be marked by flawed human wisdom, but would guide and counsel his people in the paths of justice and righteousness for all eternity. Mighty God, the son will not operate in the limited power of man, but will display the power of God. And he did this over and over throughout his ministry. Every healing, everything he did, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, walking on water, everything he did proved that he had the power of God. And of course, the greatest moment of all, his resurrection. Everlasting Father, his kingdom will not fall, nor will death end his reign. He will be a father to his people for all eternity. And I know today we may miss that a little bit, but remember, this was written in an age of kings, And it was written by Isaiah who had just experienced the loss of King Uzziah who had reigned for 50 years. And he was a good king. And now he died. And they're like, what's going on in this world? How can we make it that the king is gone? And then God tells him, says, a son is going to be born and he will be the everlasting father. His kingdom will know no end. You have a king. That will never die and be defeated by death. Would Jesus die? Yes, but he would come back to life on the third day. He would conquer death so that everything would bow beneath his feet. And then the prince of peace. The son's victory will be so complete. That peace will mark his reign for all eternity. There will be no challenges made. Sin will be removed. Death will be removed. Brokenness will be removed. And all that will remain is the peace of God on his people. This is Christmas. This was the promise that was made thousands of years before, in which he says, This is what I'm going to do. And you know what? He did it. We celebrate Christmas today because God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And now it's up to us to be reasonable with him. Are your sins forgiven? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and given your life to him and been born again? Because the true result of everything that has happened here in the kingdom of God is summed up in John 3, 16, and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. I I like to think of those as, as almost bookends to the prophecy. Come. Let us reason together, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. For God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You see, John is telling us, look, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Jesus died on the cross. He was born of a virgin. He, He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross and he was raised on the third day that if you believe in him, you will be saved and you will be a part of that kingdom that he established that will last forever. Friends, this is Christmas. Don't lose that. Don't allow the world to tell you Christmas is about something else. And even some of it sounds good. Christmas is about being with the ones you love. No, it's about celebrating the birth of Christ. Now, do hopefully we can do that with the ones we love. It makes it even sweeter. That that, that we can celebrate that together with people that are close to us. But it doesn't change the fact that this is about the Savior of mankind. That this is about Emmanuel, God with us in the world who came in the form of a flesh and blood child born of a virgin. That's what we celebrate. That's what we sing about. Hark, the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, you know. The the words are there, the lyrics are there in so many of our Christmas songs. That when we think about it, we are celebrating the right thing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. God in flesh. And so my challenge this Christmas season is think about the promise that God made. All the way back in Isaiah when nobody could have even seen what was coming, when they had no idea that God told us ahead of time, I want to I remove your sins. I'm going to have a, a, a virgin birth and a boy who is Emmanuel, and when he comes, it's going to start a kingdom that will never end, and you get to be a part of it if you simply believe. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus, then today just ask him into your life. It's that easy whosoever believes in him would not perish. Just ask Jesus into your life, and you will be born again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day and this time. And God, we do give you praise because you have been in control from the beginning. Despite our sins, despite what we have intended for evil, you have used for good. You took the sinful actions of man at the cross and redeemed humanity through them. You promised us you would come into the world, and you did. And God, there is one promise that remains, and that is your return to gather what is yours and to execute judgment against that which is not yours. God, help us, lead us to be on the right side, to be with you that our faith would lead us to believe in you and to trust in you and what you have said you would do, what you have done, and what you have yet to to finish. God, this is about your kingdom, Lord Jesus. This is about your glory. And help us to celebrate that with joy this Christmas season. That you are the Lord of lords, that you are the King of kings that you are the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, and the Mighty God. That that's what we would celebrate this year. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray it together. Amen.